Welcome back to another episode of Bed Letter. I'm your host, Christian Ashleman, and this is the podcast where we chat a little bit about our psycho-human brains, a little bit about our loony human behavior, and a lot about how it all fits together. So it looks like we have made it to episode 17 now. Kudos to those who've been uh, out there kind of tagging along with us as we go. Um, I appreciate that a lot. I appreciate all of you in the time that uh, you have been kind enough to give to me. I really appreciate that. Um, so today we're going to be looking at an article that was written by Kevin Roos in the New York Times. It's titled, How the Biden Administration Can Help Solve a Reality Crisis. Uh, first off, this article was published on February 2nd, 2021. And I kind of wanted to dive into this article because um, it touches really heavily on an idea that I've read quite a bit about. And it uses a lot of statistics um, linked in the article in a very interesting way. And so without further ado, let's just jump right into this mess and see how it goes. So I'm not going to read the whole article because that would take too long to get through. Um, if you want to check out the article, you can go to the New York Times website and it is, um, you can also head over to my Patreon page. Actually, one of the sub tiers there um, puts you in an email list and for a, uh, the email list is like a monthly newsletter that has links to and other info contained in bed letter episodes. So like other research that we've talked about, um, it has the, the newsletter has, um, you know, various things, tips for writing and English and just other stuff, basically just a lot of background content for bed letter. So anyway, let's just hop into the, um, to the article. Uh, the reporter starts off with a load of conjecture about what Americans were doing during the inauguration, right? Stating that some watched while others were, and this is a quote directly from the article, it says, were melting down in QAnon group chats, trying to figure out why former Vice President, or sorry, former President Donald Trump wasn't interrupting Mr. Biden's speech to declare martial law and announce the mass arrest of satanic pedophiles. Right out of the New York Times. All right, so there's that. Um, he goes on to describe several other colorful activities that Trump supporters were most likely engaged in when Biden was sworn in. So, uh, yeah, just an awesome way to open a uh, New York Times article there, for sure. Definitely catches the eye. Definitely <laughs> catches the eye, that's for sure. I don't know. I, it's it's something else. So anyway, so after Reese's Thanksgiving-sized helping of like skepticism and frustration for the average, uh, you know, Trump supporter is out of the way uh, because some denunciation is always, I mean, you always have to have some form of denunciation required when Trump's name is in the mix, right? You have to put that, you have to clear yourself there. You have to say, okay, you know, gotta, gotta here's my skepticism, my frustration. And I'm just going to completely denounce this. Anyway, moving on to, you know, the, the meat of the thing, right? Gotta have it. So he finally gets into some nitty gritty statistics after he, uh, does the whole denunciation thing. So he states in the article that 30%, and this is a quote, 30% of Republicans have a favorable Q, I'm sorry, have a, have a favorable view of QAnon, according to a recent YouGov poll. According to other polls, more than 70% of Republicans believe Mr. Trump legitimately won the election. And 40% of Americans, including plenty of Democrats, believe the baseless theory that COVID-19 was manufactured in a Chinese lab. 
So there's a lot to unpack in that paragraph. Um, lots of numbers thrown at you. Lots of just, I don't know, lots of stuff. Lots of uh, identity stuff, politics, just a whole lot going on in that. Um, but first off, let's look at this 30% number that he throws at us, right? He says that 30% of Republicans have a favorable view of QAnon. But if we look at the actual research, as it is linked in the original article, like in the Times article, there's a link to the specific exact research that they're using, which is good. They need to always have that. It's good to cite your sources, good to link them directly out so that um, just like your everyday reader can just click and go right over in there and check it out. So it's super helpful that they had that. Um, but we can kind of go to that link and we can sort of uh, paint a more full picture for ourselves here. But before I go into the linked research too much, I wanted to look at the parameters for the research, right? So it was conducted on January 10th through January 12th of this year, 2021, using a questionnaire interview uh, method by The Economist and YouGov. It's claimed that 1,500 U.S. adult citizens participated, and they took a random sample size and then stratified it by race and gender and age, you know, education region, political party affiliation, um, all that stuff. So we stratified it across all of those things, and and this is what we got. And so on the 111th page of the research document, and I, I you did not mishear me, I said 111th, it was a 300-page document, <laughs> a 300-page research document. But uh, on the 111th page of the research document, um, which also was not the page that it was reported to be on in the con table of contents, we'll get to more on that later, but uh, it has the interview question about QAnon favorability and all of the statistical answers, right? So he quoted this, this stat from this uh, linked research, and I went into the linked research and I found the exact part on the 111th page, right? So right out of the gate, I noticed that 48% of Republicans reported actually never having ever even heard of QAnon at all prior to the answering of the questionnaire. And a total of 42% of all who answered reported never having even heard of QAnon as well. So you have 48% of the Republicans in the sample size who report to have never heard of it. And then you have 42% of everyone, everyone who answered are saying they've never heard of QAnon as well. And I'm not going to sit here and explain what QAnon is. You can, it's just, you know, you can go and look it up. It's just conspiracy theories and a whole bunch of other stuff, um, which is very interesting. And this actually makes me think of something else specifically is it's really interesting that, you know, while people are um, completing these questionnaires, because this was an online questionnaire interview format that they did. It wasn't an uh, in-person interview. It was just a questionnaire that, that someone took online. So what, what interests me is if none of them had heard of the QAnon or of QAnon before the uh, questionnaire interview, I wonder if they had the uh, capability or uh, just ability while they were taking the questionnaire to like go to another internet tab and like Google it. And then just some really, really light Googling might lead them to this or that or the other type of opinion, right? So really interesting there. I hadn't, I hadn't really full, fully thought of that, but just as I was saying that piece, um, kind of, uh, it's kind of an interesting thought. So anyway, so where did this 30% come from, right? Where did this 30% number come from that, uh, that Roos quoted in the article about how 30% of Republicans are, uh, or more than 70% of Republicans believe Trump legitimately run the election or 30% of Republicans have a favorable view of QAnon, right? So where did that number come from specifically? 
Well, on the questionnaire, there are two tiers of favorability, right? Two tiers that people could rank. Um, there's highly favorable and somewhat favorable. And if you were to add up these two numbers in the Republican column of the research, it does in fact add up to 30%, right? So somewhat favorable and favorable, it was like 9 and 21%, I believe, um, adds up to 30. So the claim that the reporter makes isn't actually necessarily false, but does that make, just because of that, does that make the claim true? Um, personally, uh, just as in my interpretation of the results, my interpretation of everything, I would say absolutely not. I, as I looked further into, and let me explain why also, um, I'm not just burying my head in the sand saying no, but as I looked further into the stat and the measures that were used, I noticed that out of the 1500 participants, only 340 out of 1500 participants, only 340 were reported to be Republicans. Which means that out of those 340 Republicans, only 163 had ever heard of QAnon, if we use that stat from earlier, right? That 48% figure from earlier. What's more is that out of the 1,500 people who supposedly answered those questions, only 1,034 actually answered the QAnon favorability question at all. Right, So you have this whole questionnaire, 1,500 people are supposed to be answering this entire questionnaire. Um, or I guess apparently to the best of their ability, um, and only 1,034 of those 1,500 people answered the favorability question at all, right? So that's almost a third of their sample size that they are claiming to have. That's almost a third of their sample size completely removed from that stat, completely removed, right? And going even further, out of the 340 self-reported Republicans, only 203 of them answered the QAnon favorability question. So it wasn't even the full sample of Republicans. And on the other side, so you had 203 who answered the favorability question, 203 Republicans. And on the other side, you have 456 out of 563 Democrats um, of the sample size who reported to uh, self-reported Democrats who answered it, right? So so clearly there's some discrepancy here. It's almost It's more than double. You have 203 Republicans answering on one side, and you have 456 Democrats answering on one side. So, and, and the rest are all somewhere in between, right? They identify as independent, they identify as whatever. And so, very interesting, very interesting discrepancies to say there. And that's why I would say that I don't believe that that stat is 100% like factual, something we can take as a, you know, whatever, a, a fact as a something to move forward on, something to pass some sort of, you know, whatever, make, make some sort of definitive, of, of definitive choice or change on. It's not something that I would base anything on, really. Um, as you can see, where there could be some issues uh, with the reporting these, with like the reporting these percents and numbers as wholesome and complete fact, uh, but we'll we'll get more into that in a little bit here. Um, the second number that Roos throws at us earlier from that paragraph is that he says, according to other polls, seventy percent of Republicans believe that Mr. Trump legitimately won. Uh, won the election. Um, and with this stat, I, I honestly don't even know what to make of this stat. Uh, I mean, obviously, right out, as it rolls off the tongue, it sounds ridiculous, but, uh, you know, I, I followed it. I followed the links to this other research poll, but I really wasn't left with much. Um, to start with, I really, really disliked the quick word play that the writer used, that Roos used to uh, kind of slide a hand away from the fact that this 70% stack was not actually pulled from the previous poll. It wasn't pulled from the previous poll 
run by the economist in YouGov. So that one I was just talking about a minute ago, the 300-page document that he waves in your face a little bit at the beginning. The second stat, the 70% stat, is not pulled from that. It's, a, it's another poll. He just says, according to other polls, real quick, kind of just slips that in there, right? So it was really tricky. It's like he praises it so fast, and even after my my second read-through, I was actually still under the impression that all the stats were being pulled from the same document, which obviously I was completely wrong. Um, but there was another link to go to this other document, right? And the link for that stat, the 70% stat, um, the link for that stat took me into another New York Times article, which was titled, Which Republicans Are Most Likely to Think the Election Was Stolen? Those Who Dislike Democrats and Don't Bind White Nationalists. So, first of all, just a terrible title, by the way. Just garbage. Terrible title. Title is huge, in my opinion, when it comes to just... I mean, maybe like in journalism, it's it's not. I, I don't know. Some titles nowadays are outrageous, but... Titles usually set the tone for the piece and kind of like set the mindset of the reader of the piece, right? And so I, I don't know. I just like clearly this this is just an opinionated whatever piece. Um, and and if that's the case, then fine, whatever. But I'm just saying, um, terrible title. But anyway, on the site, nowhere, nowhere is it worded that 70% of Republicans believe Trump legitimately won the election. Nowhere is it worded in that way. The only thing you could find is that only only that 70% of Republicans said they agreed with President Trump's contention that he received more votes than Joe Biden. And these are two very different statements, right? One uses legitimately, the word legitimately, and one uses agreed with his contention. Very different implication. One is one is implying and using the word legitimately to say this is a fact and we need to do something about it. One is saying there is a contention. I am contesting this and we need, you know, we need to look at it a little further. Contention is a little different there. So very different implications, I think. Um, but regardless of that, though, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. I have no way of validating that 70% figure. There was no other research to link, linked out to how he even got that. Um, the only thing there was is, uh, they said that the research was was claimed to have been done by the three authors of that other article. Um, it was two professors from New York University and a potential PhD candidate. So uh, take what you will from that. Uh, there is no link on their to their official research, like what they like a PDF of their official research. It was all just in a format of a of a news article on the New York Times, um, and the article was basically just a giant smear against against anybody who would consider themselves a Republican with just enough just just enough of a little scientific sprinkle, just a little sprinkle of scientific backing, if you can call it that at all, that uh allowed it to slip into the New York Times, I guess. Um but that being said, I'm not going to pill apart that linked article. I don't I don't see the point. There's not a whole lot there. It's not nearly it's not nearly like official and 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 professional enough for, for us to really pick it apart here, I don't think. So it doesn't really deserve our time. We're going to go ahead and move on. So heading back into the main article, right? Roos goes on to say, I've spent the, and this is a quote here. He says, I've spent the past several years reporting on our national reality crisis. And I worry that unless the Biden administration treats conspiracy theories and disinformation as the urgent threats they are, our parallel universes will only drift further apart and the potential for violent unrest and civic dysfunction will only grow. 
I think a lot of, and that's the end of the quote there, I think a lot of the um, root issue of the article and the issue I took with the article is actually embedded in this statement. Um, and my reason for saying that is this. It becomes very, <clears throat> very apparent to me the lens under which the reporter is viewing our, our cultural and societal issues. It's, it's a lens that is really quite damning of the American people, right? He places zero faith in the mass majority of Americans, uh, of American people to come together, unite, love, coexist. And, uh, now some listeners, you know, some of you guys out there who spend way too much time in front of a news station might think that what I just said is absolute insanity and crazy. But I, you know, I think the media, the media will tell you that we hate one another and it'll tell you that we're divided and that we're at each other's throats and that we'd love nothing more than to spit on the grave of, of our political opponents. Uh, but I think the media is lying. And so is anyone else who tells you that we're more divided than we've ever been. Um, these are all, all of these things I think are just uh, verbal red flags to me. They're red flags that reporters and writers use to evoke a desired emotion. And a lot of times these writers don't even know that they're doing it, right? I do this a lot when I'm writing prose. Um, I write, I love writing prose. It's one of my favorite things to write. Uh, and I, I choose very specific, very directed words um, that are charged with certain emotions. And I think... Um, when it comes to journalism, these, these, uh, and, and media and news, they do the exact same thing. And sometimes they do it without realizing it, but they definitely do the exact same thing. They choose words that will, uh, evoke some type of reaction, right? And, and it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Words do that. Words have that function, but there is a, there is a point where it's kind of becomes clear that there's some sort of subtle manipulation going on. And uh, I'll get a little bit more into that in a little bit here. But um, moving on, I think that having a concern for the spread of misinformation, like he says in his quote and in the article, um, and dangerous ideologies, having a concern for those things is very valid and important for the health of our, our, uh, our cultural psychology, right? Like that is an important thing. But that being said, I don't believe that what we need to do is to look for our, to our government or the Biden administration to swoop in and provide the solution to it. The road has been paved. That road has been paved by rebellions and blood of countless cultures that have come before us. So I, I would ask, who are we if we don't listen to history, right? I would rather risk dangerous ideas slipping out into the world a hundred, a hundred, hundred, hundred thousand times over before I would ever risk uh, government-controlled information circulation by any by any measure. But moving into the next section, um, Roos goes on to quote one of the many experts he claims to have found. Um, he says experts quite a few times in the article, <laughs> uh, but he states, uh, and her this lady's name is John John Donovan. Here's here's his. This isn't John Joan Donovan's quote. This is Roos's quote. He says, Joan Donovan, the research director of Harvard University's Shorstein. Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy suggested that the Biden administration could set up a truth commission similar to the 9-11 commission to investigate the planning and execution of the Capitol siege on January 6th. This effort, she said, would ideally be led by people with deep knowledge of the many networked factions that coordinated and carried out the riot, including white supremacist groups and far-right militias. 
So after I read that, my first thought was that I love how, and maybe this isn't great, but I love how when cities burn and there's just plenty, just plenty of nefarious activity, billions of dollars in damages, um, and just massive spread of misinformation like we saw last summer. There was, I mean, there was truth out there last summer, but there was definitely a mis, a spread of misinformation last summer as well. Um, in all the riots and I think it's funny that that type of thing doesn't warrant a truth commission or whatever but now that the other side you know the other side has wrongly acted out um terribly acted out obviously I mean the capital riots is it's a joke it's terrible it's absolutely terrible um but yeah now that the other side acted out it's game over and a truth commission needs to be needs to be made and and all this stuff right like clearly i am not in support of this type of commission whatsoever i'm just i'm just saying but anyway a little further down the article Roos goes on to quote dr donovan saying there must be accountability for these actions my fear is that we will get distracted as a society and focus too much on giving voice to the fringe groups that came out in droves for trump and again, I don't, I don't know how they aren't seeing the irony here simply by creating an entire branch or commission of government that, that puts a spotlight on the fringe groups, right? You are giving them a voice. It is through articles like this that fringe groups get a massive voice. And, and maybe there is some irony in uh in me doing this episode since maybe it could be argued that i'm also giving them a voice but i'm also not the one who's trying to implement some sort of some sort of uh ministry of truth or something right quite quite the opposite actually so anyway so what do what use do uh and this is kind of just a thought i had as i was reading this what what use do statistics have to the individual right nothing none their value is only just in gaining more knowledge about the world, right? You, you, there is value, but it's in gained knowledge. It isn't in, in enacted, you know, physical behaviors for for an individual. Statistics gain value when you use a, a like a macro level of analysis, right? Or able to make laws and regulations based on statistics as they apply to an entire group of, or an entire population of people, right? It is because of this that it becomes so dangerous, so dangerous to enact some sort of, uh, like lasting policy and societal change that's focused directly on minute fringe groups. For example, legislation recent, this is, this is a pretty specific example, very current, um, but for example, legislation recently passed that dictates um, that all public schools must allow all transgender girls to participate in sports. Um, transgender girls make up a fractional percent of our population, right? Very fractional percent of the population, especially if we boiled it down to just transgender girls and just transgender girls who are in sports, right? But how are we supposed to tell young girls biological girls that oh well they have to go be get beat by someone who is actually physically stronger than them on an uneven playing field and that that's okay how how is that fair the smaller size of the transgender population would mean that only a few girls just a few get screwed over in this deal just a few biological girls get screwed over right just a couple of them but why why then is it okay for us to put the needs and uh, and human value of a transgender girl above the needs and human value of a biological girl when the entire debate is about the value of a human in the first place 
right? This whole, this fringe policy seeks to provide equality, but all it's doing is valuing somebody else's experience more than another person's. It's valuing the transgender girl's experience in sports more than a traditional biological girl's experience in sports. At the end of the day, someone is still being discriminated, uh, discriminated against, beaten and told that they're of less value, right? Like girls have lost scholarships. I've read articles about girls who've lost scholarships and who have given up the sport entirely. But, you know, that's okay because at least transgen tri transgender girls can play, right? If you have to do a wrong thing in order to do a right thing, how right really is that thing? Does this all, I mean, obviously, you know, disclaimer, does this all mean, does this all mean that transgender girls should be thrown to the side and given up on? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. They have value too, of like 100%, of course. My point isn't about whether you're transgender or not, or whether that's okay or not at all. My point is about the playing field and about the rules under which we all play being different, being changed. I mean, all kinds of things like that. So anyway, through something like a truth commission, the playing field would become more uneven than it has ever been before. I don't know if you have, or if you haven't ever read 1984, which obviously that needs to be brought up if truth commissions are being talked about, but 1984 is an amazing book by George Orwell. I would highly recommend it. Uh, but it details pretty plainly the the advent of something like a ministry of truth. In in reality, all the ministry does is run around and stop people from speaking truths, right? In reality, that's their job. They're not preaching truths. They're actually just stopping people from saying the truth so that they can control what their version of the truth is. Um, and when they lock these people up, they lock the people who are trying to tell the truth up. They kill them. They torture them. And they do all kinds of things to them. Brainwash them. The list goes on. But the ministry of truth's real job is to fabricate the most believable and spreadable lie that they can in order to continue the subservient nature of everyone in society. In, in the society of, of 1984, right? It would be all too easy for something like a truth commission to fall into this exact same lane where you're, where you're not you're not just preaching what is factual truths. You're just now, you're now curbing everybody else from saying what their truth is. And you are fabricating some version of whatever your truth is. Could be false, could be true, could be total manipulation. People would have no idea because they're the truth commission and what they say is true, right? I mean, it just wouldn't, it just doesn't make any sense for a free thinking individual. But moving on in the article, Ruse says, this task force could also meet regular, regularly with tech platforms and push for structural changes that could help those companies tackle their own extremism and misinformation problems. For example, it could formulate safe harbor exemptions that would allow platforms to share data about QAnon and other conspiracy theory communities with researchers and government agencies without running afoul of privacy laws. And it could become the tip of the spear for the federal government's response to the reality crisis. So just when you thought he wouldn't go there, he actually went there, right? So on the surface, all of this could look so magnificent, right? So great if you have obviously no prior knowledge of like history or how humanity works, you know, any of that stuff. But here we literally have Roos advocating for the government to collaborate with big tech to spy on its users. <laughs> 
which we are already spied on by big tech, right? And now we're going to have the government collude in with that and get involved. That seems like a great idea, right? But anyway, he uses words like extremism and misinformation, power words, right? We're, we're touching on these power words, right? Everyone hates those words, extremism. Everybody hates that. Misinformation, disinformation. Everybody hates that. We've been conditioned, literally conditioned to hate those words. So when they use them, they're using them on purpose and they're using them for, for a certain gain, right? But that must mean that what he's suggesting is good and right, right? The safe harbor sounds nice and QAnon, yeah, screw that guy. These are all very, you know, these are all those power words. But I mean, come on, it's at the end of the, at the end of this quote, he even states that, that it would be the tip of the spear, right? The point proven. He, it sounds nice to have someone watching out for the crazies, right? It has someone, it sounds nice to have someone looking out for the next, the next school shooter so they can, pull a minority report and take them out before they strike. That sounds great. Then something else happens and their parameters change. The capital gets raided and all of a sudden, 20 new keywords like QAnon and Capital Rioter and even something like Trump and Trump supporter and supporter get added into the, uh, you know, the safe harbor exemptions that we have. And suddenly you're sitting at home and maybe you identify with Republican beliefs and maybe you have struggled with its leadership and so you go online and you're talking about this with other people who are in a similar boat only now you can't because you've been locked out of your socials since you used maybe the words trump and supporter online at one point and i guess if you're locked out of your socials that's no big deal right maybe you can get locked out of your computer altogether maybe your front door gets blown down and you get put in handcuffs that's not so cool also not a far reach once the ball gets rolling. That's the thing. Once the snowball gets rolling, there's the tiny little snowball. Just the tech companies. Just safe harbor, right? It's okay. It's okay. And then it gets bigger and it gets bigger and more things happen. More things happen. More words get added into safe harbor. And before you know it, everybody's being censored. Everybody's being um, told that their version of whatever they're experiencing is wrong. So... <clears throat> the final sections of this article actually bring some viable solutions to the table, which is a bit of a stark difference from the whole first half. Um, well, I wanted to focus mainly on the idea of a reality czar, because that's that's the, kind of the focus here, since that idea really actually just freaks me out. I will sum up the closing, uh, the closing of the article, since there is some value there. Um, Roos explains that it it uh, it's possible that we move forward by performing what he calls an audit of algorithms, basically to have analysts dissect um, the advertising and timeline algorithms that Twitter and Facebook use to show uh, new content to you. I see this as a plus, something that probably should have been happening for a long time now. Um, those algorithms should definitely always be looked at. Additionally, Roos goes on to explain that another path we could take is to enact a sort of uh, social stimulus. Uh, and this is my actually my personal favorite of his suggestions. And I, I'm being serious. This is very, this is a pretty good suggestion, I think, um, made by a lot of the experts he talked to. He details an idea that several experts had, wherein uh, we as a society focus on healing society, education, mental health, and the workforce. Um, this idea is the most powerful, I think, because it's through the people, through the people that change comes. Hope grows and unite, unity flourishes. I'll tie up the article with a quote from Roos. If President Biden wants to bring extremists and conspiracy theorists back to reality, he can start by making that reality worth coming back to. 
But I am actually going to change that quote because I like it better this way. And since, because I think once again, that the way he puts that once again falls into this dark place of wishing the government would solve all your problems for you. Um, but I'll say if you want to bring extremists and conspiracy theorists back to reality, you can start by helping to make the re that reality worth coming back to. You can substitute the you with a we, if we want to bring, with us, with whatever. But it is our job, and not the president's job, to make this world a little less dark. It is not his his job. It is not his sole, like, his sole job, and we, we shirk all responsibility for doing that. That is all of our jobs every second of every day. All right? So, before we wrap up, I really wanted to kind of discuss some of the things that this article and and more importantly like the the linked research that we've talked about a bit could have could have done a lot better um Roos throughout the article uses a lot of words that convey very specific meanings and feelings you know like we talked about earlier he uses words like experts a lot he used the word experts so many times i stopped counting um very rarely, there's only a few uh, circumstances where he details what those experts, who those experts are and what their credentials are, but he uses the word experts a lot. Again, key word. Um, crisis, uses the word crisis constantly. Reality crisis. It's just crisis, crisis. It's painted all over. Terror, terrorist, domestic, uh, extremism. These are all uh, words that were used a lot in the article, and they all convey a very specific feeling and a very specific worry, and that is that fear is what will lead people to the idea that they need to be told what their truth is, right? But anyway, these words were all used many, many times throughout the piece, and it's important to keep that in mind when reading something that is so so politically targeted, um, especially something that's so politically targeted. He has a certain goal. And an unwary, you know, careless reader will get sucked into that trap, I think. This is also a lesson for you in your writing, though, right? So um, as long as we're talking about tips for English things and writing and stuff, um, you're able to do this with words. It, it, you, you have it in your – it's a tool on your tool belt. You're able to do so much with just simple words that you choose to use and then reuse, right? Huge. Very important. So within the linked research, though, uh, there were all kinds of little things that I noticed. Um, some I've already pointed out. A lot of them I've already pointed out, such as the discrepancy in the number of people answering the questions from question to question. Um, the first issue that I noticed was that uh, the time to market was actually incredibly fast. This research took place on January 10th to 12th of 2021. That's like half a month ago. I mean, that's like two weeks ago. Um, two, two to three weeks ago, and then it was released just a couple days after that, right? So this may or may not have that, – that sort of speed might not have an effect on the results, right? But I do feel like it definitely affects the interpretation of those results, um, which is huge, right? Careless interpretation can negate whole swathes of your research. And while this is mostly a, a, a self-report interview and questionnaire online, I think they run a risk of missing important details that could have an effect on the way that people view the work, right? For example, I saw several typos along the, along the, with the fact that none of the pages in the document were actually correctly correlated to where they are stated to be in the table of contents. 
Table of contents tells you something's on page 100. You go to page 100, it's something else entirely. You have to scroll to page 110, 120 to actually find the thing you're looking for. Um, and it would just be very, it was just a little frustrating at some parts. Um, but additionally, another part that I saw as troubling within the linked research was that the researchers had a total of 563 Democrats and only 340 Republicans and 597 independents. And I mean, clearly this is a very politically um, charged and, 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 and centered questionnaire and bit of research, right? And so um, I understand that the research desired to have a random sample, and I think that that is very important that they do have one. But I will say it is a little weird that there is such an imbalance in those numbers when the entire research is centered around politics. I believe that if statements are going to be made about such large groups of people, then we better have the most balanced, well-rounded data to back that up. And this data just seems, I don't know, it just seems really lofty at best. Um, but in that same vein, uh, with research like this, you have to be very careful with how you interpret it. Obviously, Roos had his, his own way of interpreting it, which is in part why research is so interesting. Like I said before, it paints a bigger picture and everyone can zoom in as close as they want on any particular piece. That being said, the concern is that when you zoom in too close, you can end up turning the stats into anything you want them to be. For example, one of the questions in the questionnaire was, "You're better. are you better off now than you were four years ago? 39% of people said uh, that they were better off now. 36% of people said that they were better off four years ago. And 25% said that they weren't sure. They have no idea. And that's those are in total numbers. But the interesting thing is if uh, out of out of the college grads, because they, they stratified things by college graduation uh, degree or not. And so, but out of college grads, 55% said that they are better off now, while only 36% of non-college grads said that they were better off now. And so now I can go and I can make some big advertisement that claims college is proven to increase your overall livelihood by almost 20%. You see how easy it is to say something like that after you have some just like simple statistics from a sample size that is pretty small and you have not everybody answering the question and you have totally like a million different stratifications and you have like it's just you stack it on and you you start you can just make really uh, big claims about about really big groups of people from very, very minute, tiny little bits of research. And that is dangerous. That's my point. Many people look at research as hard and fast rules, facts, unchangeable realities, right? The problem with that is that it becomes extremely difficult to realize when you're only being shown the bottom corner of the painting, not the entire thing. It becomes difficult to realize, hey, here is a stat. But what else is there to this stat? Is there something they aren't showing me? Why are they choosing to focus in on this exact piece of the stat? Why are they focusing on this little part and forgetting about the rest? What, journal, what journalists and researchers choose to focus on in their interpretation of statistical results is super critical in how the public is going to view those findings. Many times throughout that linked research, there are uh, that I was going through there's stats between Republicans and Democrats that are actually a lot closer than you might think but 
to, you know, obviously holding hands and seeing Kumbaya around the fire doesn't get views on Fox and CNBC. So don't let this perceived division, perceived division, tear at the relationship that you have with the world. But um, to wrap it up, my final criticisms are that I don't think the research needed to be as long and drawn out as it was. There's over 300 pages, some questions being pretty pointless in my opinion. They didn't seem to put too much mind into the length of wording of the questions and questionnaire as a whole. At one point, there were three questions in a row that were all asking almost the exact same thing about if people thought voter fraud occurred and if it was enough to overturn the election or if it was enough to impact the results. They just worded it a little different three times in a row. And it, they were in a row too, which was funny. But the three questions in a row, they were all about this. They were all worded just a little differently. Um, and in each of those questions, there was a totally different number of people that answered out of that 1,500, that group of 1,500. And in fact, in one of those questions, only 829 people answered, which is just over half. Like, and that was just on one of the questions. There's obviously a ton of questions. It's a 300-page document, so who knows which other ones? Who knows how low they can go on some of these and or not? You know, it's it's just I don't know. It doesn't seem very consistent, especially when every single page of the document says 1,500 people, U.S. citizens were, you know put into this research so really i don't know i just feel like it could have been a lot more poignant and a lot more efficient um and i didn't pour through every word of the 300 page document that would have been torture but i did go through about 100 100 pages of 100 to 150 of them so i got a pretty solid idea about what was being offered uh granted i obviously could have missed a few things for sure so guys here it is at the end of the day i don't need someone to tell me what is true and what isn't that isn't the job of our government. Most of the time, it isn't even the job of anyone, period, except for yourself. It is your job to find the truth in the world. It is your job to discover what that means for you. Everyone has an unquenchable, unquenchable thirst for truth, and it can look really attractive when um, it's like it's bundled up all nice in the form of someone just telling you what to believe right but that isn't living that's barely even existing the journey for truth is the greatest mission of life the wonderful fuel for growth and potential and personally i would fight tooth and nail for it to remain that way so anyway, I think that's where we're going to wrap up the episode. Remember that if you are thinking about, uh, if you're thinking about anyone, someone crosses your mind, uh, I'll reach out to them. Tell them that they were on your mind and see how they're doing. Because you have a lot more power to improve the lives of those around you than you think. Don't forget it. But if you've enjoyed listening, be sure to follow Bedletter on whatever platform you prefer. You can check out my blog and a whole bunch of other projects that I'm that I'm working on over at my website. It's cashleman.com, C-A-S-H-L-I-M-A-N.com. If you are super inclined, I actually have a Patreon where um, I have details about different services that I offer in editing, um, tutoring, and mentoring. Most of that stuff is in regards to like English and writing and stuff, but there's a, there's some other things on there as well. Um, all this info can be found on my website. It's again, cashleman.com. So head there if you're interested. 
I really, really, really appreciate you all for tuning in, checking out this episode. Um, I hope you all have an awesome week, and I will see you next time on Bed Letter. Thank you.